Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. Well, good morning, chapel. Happy daylight savings time. Nothing says welcome to spring like we're going to steal an hour of sleep from you and make you feel happy about it. Uh, a lot of good stuff going on. We were in uh, the big city of Tuscaloosa yesterday, so I got to eat Dreamland barbecue. And all I thought about was Bunyan's is so much better. So uh, we were there for volleyball tournament. It was a great, great tournament. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. As we close out the name-calling series today, and so we've walked through uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 for the last four weeks. This will be the fifth week, and the first week we talked about you have a name on earth, but also a name in heaven. That God, when he was wrestling with, with Israel, with Jacob, he changed his name from Jacob, which was his earthly name, which meant conniver or con man, to Israel, which basically meant God's person or prince. Then the second week we talked about the cure for rejection in a world that's full of rejection is to know that God has chosen you, and he calls you... Chosen. The third way we talked about you are a priest, which means you have exclusive access to the presence of God. You can walk into the presence, you can go boldly to the throne of grace because God has called you a priest. The last way we talked about the me I see is the me I'll be. That if you see yourself as a sinner, you'll keep on sinning. If you see yourself as holy, you'll live a holy lifestyle. And next week we start a new series called The Making of a Saint to kind of tie into that as well as we walk through 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. And so I don't know about you, when I was growing up, uh, we were poor. We didn't have cable. I don't think we had cable until like, I, it was amazing. After I left the house, my dad started buying stuff that we needed when I was younger. Like, we drew, I had to tell the kids the other day, I said, do you know what a hoopty is? They said, no, what's a hoopty? I said, see, it's a problem with kids these days. They get nice cars. They get smartphones. We had hoopties. When we were growing up, if you got a hoopty, no one cared what your car looked like as long as you could go from point A to point B. My dad had a hoopty my entire life. Dropped us off at school in a big old, like, 1979 four-door Caprice Classic. My friends are getting dropped off, and the, the Chevy, all the nice stuff. And so I was talking to the kids. When I was growing up, we didn't have cable. And so during the summer, you're home from school. You literally, you got to watch PBS on black and white, and you had to turn it and adjust the antenna. PBS, which you watch Roy Rogers or Gene Autry. Then at 10 a.m., you could switch it over to Nashville Channel 5 and watch it on color, which was The Price is Right. Like, I don't know about you, but I tried to watch it recently, and you can't, Bob Barker and Drew Carey are two different worlds apart. If it's not Bob Barker, I'm not watching it. And you watch it, and you have all these evil people, like people on the, on the showcase where they're making the, the initial bids, and they would always bid a dollar or one dollar above the other persons. And I thought, what kind of evil, demonic human being would bid $1 more than the last person? Like, you just basically took any chance whatsoever. And so you watch it, and they would always take games, and they would basically change the price tags on the games and ask you to guess which price is right. Well, Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard years ago said, told a story about these thieves that broke into a jewelry store. And when they broke into the jewelry store, they didn't take anything at all. They broke into the jewelry store and changed the price tags on everything. And the next day, people came into that jewelry store, and they were actually buying 
thousands and thousands of dollars worth of jewels for pennies on the dollar. Then some people are buying things that were worthless for thousands of dollars. And he came to this conclusion that we live in a world where someone has changed the price tag. And it's, it's, it's evil when you think about it on jewelry, but what about when it comes to people? We've let the world change the price tags on the things that are actually valuable and made them where they're not valuable anymore. We've let the world put price tags on people. And when you don't know your worth, anyone and everyone will put a cheap price tag on you. And when you have a cheap price tag on you, it leads to all types of things. It leads to insecurity and low self-esteem. It leads to women going into bad relationships where they're mistreated, they're abused, or, or they're sexually active before they should be because they don't value themselves because they let someone place a cheap price tag on them. For men, it shows them doing stuff and committing crimes and doing things they shouldn't do in order to prove their worth of manhood. Like it's an epidemic in our world where people are trying to prove their value because they don't know their value. And what's crazy is that we serve a God who tells us exactly how much he values us. We allow other people, their opinions, to be esteemed over our creators. God tells us we're valuable. We're, we're worth more than heaven to him. But we allow people that we don't even like, people on Facebook, their opinion count more than God's. If you would, stand as we read First Peter chapter 2 together. I'll read it. Right here, it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for what? His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is telling you right here that you are his people. You are his possession. You are his children. And he actually says, at one time you were not, but now you are, which tells us not everybody is God's child. I need you to get this. This is, this is a serious linchpin of your faith. Not everyone is a child of God. Not everyone is part of God's possession. Only those who have repented and by faith trusted in Jesus are now grafted in to God's family. That means God sees everyone in the world as either part of his family or not part of his family. But one of the deceptions is that we live in a world, especially in the South, where we think everybody is God's child. Now, every human being is made in the image of God, and God wants every person to be his child, but not everybody is. That should fuel your gratitude that you are one of God's children. It should also fuel your worship and your passion for worship. But it should also fuel your passion for evangelism. And the reason we don't activate our passion for evangelism is because we believe, we wouldn't say this out loud, we believe everybody's already saved. He says there's a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light in this scripture. That we've been translated from darkness into light. There's two kingdoms. And the greatest deception is when you are part of the kingdom of darkness, but you believe you're part of the kingdom of light. And the reason people can be deceived, I don't know about you, but if you wake up really early in the morning and your eyes are closed and you wake up and your eyes adjust, you can be in the dark and still function and see. And there are so many people, generational curses, generational people, that they're still living in darkness, but they're so used to the darkness they can still function. And the moment light begins to shine, they move away from the light because the light hurts their eyes. They've been so adjusted to the dark. 
And my desire for you today is to understand and know your value and your purpose so you can go and reach those who are in the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you this morning that we can come here together in safety and in health and worship your name. And we thank you, Father, for those of us, of us that are saved, that we have been transferred from the darkness into light, that we are now your children. You know our name and you love us. We are your possession. And Father, we lift up this morning all of the city of Nashville and all the churches that are reaching out to serve and love and restore and rebuild the city that was torn down by the tornadoes. Father, we just pray for energy and strength. We pray that you use what the enemy meant for evil for good, for your glory and for your purpose. Father, we lift up all those with the coronavirus. I lift up Blake Stanley in Three Circles Church out of Fairhope, Alabama. Dear, dear friend of mine, quarantined in Palestine. That Father, you allow them to be protected supernaturally from any sickness or disease or viruses. And Father, you bring them back home to their family safe and secure. And Father, we also lift up this morning, Brooklyn Sartain, uh, Ray and Kim's daughter, Father, through her surgery. We pray right now that you restore her body. You provide a miracle for her, her body to be restored, healthy and whole and rejuvenated with a full and quick recovery in Jesus' name. So we bless you in this place. We thank you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. See, if you don't know your worth, you allow other people to make you feel worthless. Like it's a, it's a pretty simple principle. If you don't know how much you're worth, you allow other people to make you feel worthless. But if you know how much you're worth, the opinions of other people won't make a difference. If you know your value, no one else can determine how invaluable you feel. And this scripture right here says that you are special. Like God himself is speaking through this scripture. His word is saying, you are special. You are his dear possession. Like you are, I don't think we get that enough, that you are his. And if you're God's, God's gonna take care of you. He's gonna protect you. He's gonna provide for you. He's gonna love you. He's gonna cherish you. He's gonna be there for you as you are his. Like our faith is founded in this principle that we are God's. I'm not my dad's. I'm not my mom's. I'm not the world's. I'm not America's. I am God's people. I am his child. I am his son. And out of that flows everything out of me, everything. And what's crazy is, you know, most of us have kids in this room. If you don't uh, and they're not teenagers, you're very blessed right now. We have four teenagers and life is crazy, crazy. And now my kids are my kids. And I don't take this the wrong way when I say this, but your kids may be special to you, but they may not be special to me. My kids may not be that special to you. You may not care. Like you may have little drawings that they did when they were four or five years old that you're keeping thinking, oh, my little Johnny, he's an amazing artist. No, he's not. That is the ugly drawing. Oh, you should come watch my little Billy play baseball. He's the world's greatest baseball player. He's going to go to play at Alabama. He's going to go play for the Braves. He's amazing. No, he is terrible. He's picking dandelions in the outfit. He's not good. See, you think your kid is special. I may not. You know why? Because they're not my kid. But my kids are special to me. Why? They are my kids. And when God says you are mine, you are his, what he's saying is you may not be special to everybody else. You may not be special to the world. You may not be special to your neighbors or, or to your teachers or to your coworkers or to your boss. You may not be special to anybody else, but God says he's got your little ugly drawing saved up in heaven. 
He's showing up at your ball game to watch you strike out again. Like he's saying, they may not be special to you, but to me, they are special because they are mine. And when you understand that regardless, God created you individually and uniquely to be his. There is nobody else in the world like you. Neither will there ever be anyone else like you. You are special to God, and out of that flows the favor of God. Like you realize you're God's favorite. Like my pastor, Pastor Maury Davis, on his seat <laughs> has a sign on his chair in our church that said God's favorite on it. Because sometimes you need to be reminded that no matter what anyone else says about you, that you're God's favorite. You are his and you are chosen by God to be loved by God and not in a special way. Like in the South, we use the word special. Oh, he's so special. Like we, what we really mean is he is dumb as a rock. Like when God says you're special, he's saying you're set apart. Like when you're special to God, what he's saying is when he hears your name, his heart begins to flutter. When he hears your name, his eyes begin to light up. When he hears your name, he starts to think through the memories that you've shared. Like when you're special to God, it means you have special attention and special focus and special love. When he says you are his, it means he's going to do everything he can to take care of you. It's a foundational principle that once you realize you are special and chosen and you are God's person, that's where your faith rises up. Like I'm not worried about the coronavirus because I'm God's people. Like, I'm not worried about the next election because I know whose I am. I'm not the president's kid. I'm not the government's kid. I am his kid. And out of that flows my faith for everything else. And once you come to that place, once you come to that place, it changes absolutely everything. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 43. I want to read one more scripture to you just to nail this point home. I'm going to start in verse 1. This is a, the scripture is actually, 1 Peter chapter 2 and Isaiah 43 are actually connected together. The language is actually the same exact language. And starting in verse 1, I'm going to read this really slowly. It says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. You, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. This scripture is the same thing, but God is prophesying through Isaiah what is fulfilled in 1 Peter. He's saying, you are mine. Like I've redeemed you. And since I've redeemed you, I'm gonna be with you. When the floods rise up, I will be with you. When the fires start to burn, I will be with you. When stuff starts to come against you, I will be with you. Why? Because you are precious in my sight. I love you. I honor you. I give the world peoples. I'll give countries and nations in exchange for you because you are so precious to me. It's like God is trying to reiterate this over and over and over again in Scripture. And like if we can get it, it changes everything about us if we can just come to this conclusion that I'm God's. 
Like it brings a sense of peace in my life. It brings a sense of security in my life. It brings a faith and a hope and a joy that helps me overcome every season that is difficult. And there will be difficult seasons. Even in the scripture, it talks about difficult seasons of floods and fire and storms. Like there's difficult seasons in life. And if you don't know whose you are in those seasons, you will start to guess whose you are. And so if you know who you are before you face the storm, you don't have to worry about the storms. It's a full point number one is this. Your value is determined by God's opinion of you, not the opinion of others. Your value is determined by God's opinion of you, not the opinion of others. Not by polls, not by people who gossip about you, not, about, not by people who post things about you on Facebook, but don't say your name, but you know that they know that they're talking about you, and it's all the chaos that ensues. And so then you have people say, well, I know she's talking about me. She probably is talking about you. But you know what? Her opinion or his opinion is not important because it does not determine your value. Your, determ- your value is determined by God's opinion of you. So it may be important to find out what God's opinion of you is. It's easy to find the opinion of others, but to find God's opinion of me sometimes is difficult. You have to filter through voices and, and through life and through experiences and through his word and, and find out. And he says it in the scripture how we can find his opinion of us. He says, listen, I've redeemed you. I've redeemed you. And that word redemption means to buy something back. It literally means to purchase something. In some contexts, it means to, to buy something to release it from bondage or captivity. And so he starts this prophecy with this word of, I redeemed you. I've bought you. He's saying right now, there's a value upon your head, and I was willing to pay whatever the cost may be. And see, value is something we don't think about. Value is determined by supply and demand. If there's too much of something, the value goes down. If there's not enough, the value goes up. And so supply and demand affects value, and there is no one else like you. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You could put your name, for God so loved Bobby that he gave his only begotten son. He's saying there's a value, and the seller never determines the value. We've, we've been taught this, that the seller determines, if you're going to sell your car, and you look in Kelly Blue Book, and your, book and your car's worth $10,000, you ask for $10,000. But you know, what you ask for whatever you're selling doesn't determine the value of that car. If somebody comes up and says, I'll give you 11000 and somebody else really, really, really wants that car, they may say, well, if he's giving you eleven, I'll give you twelve. We see this at auctions all the time. In auctions, the sellers determine the value of whatever is being sold. In the same way, in all of life, the seller always determines the value. You can ask too much for something and no one will buy it. If you ask too little, people will begin to buy it. And in this case, the seller does not determine the value, only the buyer. And guess who bought you? God. He determined the value of what you are worth. It doesn't matter what the price was put on your head. I, I shared it a couple of weeks ago. My mom was telling a story about how she almost sold me when she was pregnant with me to the neighbors for $500. But you know what? That $500 does not determine my value. God is the one who bought me. Therefore, he determines my value. He determines what I'm worth. Since he was the one willing to purchase me and redeem me, 
Redemption is this heavy, heavy word for purchasing back or buying back. And the only thing we have close to it is if you ever go to our modern day purgatory called Chuck E. Cheese. Which if you make it through, you automatically get a ticket to heaven. It's, it's purgatory. It's kids chaos. You're talking about coronavirus. There's worse diseases in Chuck E. Cheese than the coronavirus could ever dream about. And if you go into Chuck E. Cheese, they have all these rides. and Your kids could ride the rides, but they don't want to ride the rides. They want to play these stupid games. Why do they want to play the games? Because they can get tickets. Why do they want the tickets? Because if they get enough tickets, they can get the toy that's in the big glass display box. So you'll spend $135 playing stupid games for your kids to get these tickets to get a toy that cost them like 15 cents to buy. $135 for a 15 cent toy. And all the tickets will have on there redemption ticket. It actually tells us the term redemption ticket or redeemable, meaning you can use these tickets to redeem or buy back something you want. And so with our kids, they play all these games and you count the tickets out and they have 135 tickets and they're like, hey, they're going through this glass case. And I try to convince my kids for years, listen, don't play games and I'll go buy you whatever you want. It'll be cheaper for me to take you to Toys R Us and buy something than to play these games. No, they want what's in that glass case. You go through and they have 135 tickets and you're going through and they see a little toy they want. And they'll start counting out those tickets. And once they get enough tickets, they'll slide those tickets across the desk to the 14-year-old kid who just stole all your money that works at Chuck E. Cheese. And they'll take out the green army soldier and put him on the table that your kid just bought for $135. And they'll say, now it's yours. See, in the same way with redemption, it's like God saw us in that glass case caught up in sin. Caught up in this kingdom of darkness, whatever it may be. Caught up in evil. Focused in in looking towards hell and death as our destiny or purpose. And God looks at it and he says, what can we do? He looks at Jesus, I need you to go down there. I want you to play the game of life. I want you to go through life. I want you to play all the games. Every game the enemy brings against you, 40 days of temptation in the desert, I want you to face that. I want you to go through life and never sin and win the game of life. And when you win the game of life, when you get enough tickets, I want you to slide those tickets across the table and you get back for me what I lost. You get back for me what I want. You get back to me, Bobby, who's in that glass case, Dylan, who's in that glass case, and you slide those tickets and you redeem for me what I want. Now listen, that green army man may not have been worth $135, but my son was willing to pay it because he wanted it. I may not be worth the value of the life of Jesus. I may not be worthy of the blood of Jesus, but God said, I'm willing to pay too much. I'm willing to go above and beyond because I want them more than I want the price it's gonna cost me to take it. See, that is your value. It's like the little kid, he walked into his parents, his parents were having a money fight. They're arguing, his dad was counting money and paying all the bills and writing checks. And the kid slid in, he said, dad, 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 can you play? And dad was frustrated writing checks. And finally the kid said, dad, how much did I cost? Because the kid finally, seven or eight years old, started realizing his dad was paying bills for him. Maybe his birth or hospital bills and school bills and all these things. He said, how much did I cost? And the dad just flippantly said, oh, well, a million dollars. 
So a little boy left, he was thinking, he said, I can't believe, like my dad's having to work two jobs to pay a million dollars for me. And the boy goes back to his piggy bank. We don't have piggy banks anymore. We used to have piggy banks, they smelled like filth, like rotten pennies. He took his penny bank and he took the little stopper out of the bottom and he'd been given a silver dollar for every one of his birthdays and he had seven silver dollars in that piggy bank. And he dumped them out and he, he got them and went to his dad. He said, dad, here you go. It's not a million dollars, but maybe this will help pay off what it costs you for me. And the dad was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you said I cost a million dollars. He said, I didn't mean you cost a million dollars. I said, you're worth more than a million dollars. And when you realize that all the chaos and junk you've put God through is more than worth it to him. It will change the way you see your life. Because a diamond is just another stone to people who don't understand its worth. Like if you don't understand the value of a diamond, like if you just, if you didn't know what a diamond was and you were in some country and you found a diamond, and diamonds don't look like they do on a ring when you find them. When you find out, if they didn't know it was a diamond and they didn't know its worth, they would think it's another stone. Other people look at you, they don't know that you're a diamond. They don't understand your value. Therefore, they can't help determine your worth to other people. But God sees the diamond in the rough. God sees the value where other people don't see it. And he chooses to say, you are mine. And he wants you. So quit valuing what other people say about you. Quit valuing the value other people place on you. And listen, start valuing your value to God. Start valuing your value to God. When you know how much you mean to God, it will change everything else about you. The words of people won't mean anything to you. The, hip, the hypocrites around you, the gossip around you, the slander around you won't mean anything if you know whose you are. And then two, he says, and I'll buy you back, I'll, I'll redeem you, I'll ransom you, and then when you go through the fire, you won't get burned. When you go through the floods, you won't be overwhelmed. When you go through trials and storms, you're not going to be consumed. And it's amazing to me that he goes from saying what our value is to then telling them they're going to go through it. He didn't say if, he says when you go through the fire, when you go through the river. He starts saying when, why? Because once you know what you're worth, you can go through anything. Once you go through, once you know your value to God, you can have faith in God through every single one of those seasons. And here's the deal. You have to know that God did not bring you this far. If he loves you that much, if he loves you that much, if he values you in this way, he did not bring you this far to abandon you. That's what he's trying to communicate here. That when you go through the rivers and they're flooding, don't think, well, God, God has left me. God doesn't love me anymore. He's telling you your worth on the front end so that way you won't question it in the middle. He tells you how much you're worth at the beginning so you don't question it along the journey, meaning your circumstances do not determine God's presence or absence in your life. He tells them, I will be with you. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. When you go through the waters, I will be with you. Why? Because he paid so much for you. If you pay a lot for something, you take care of it. If you spend a lot of money on something, you cherish it. 
You protect it. You guard it. You take care of it. And God says, I paid a whole lot of money for you. And if you start being attacked and you start going through it, you better believe I'm going to be right there with you because I'm going to protect my investment. But we as people, we start thinking that once we hit a difficult season, well, maybe God's gone. Hit a difficult season in your marriage, hit a difficult season in your family or your life, you start, the flood starts rising up, maybe a tornado comes through your city and takes out your church or takes out your house, or maybe you're a church staff and you're quarantined in Palestine due to the coronavirus. Did God leave us? Did God abandon me? Did God forsake me? Even Jesus on the cross dealing with our sin and the pressure and the burden said, Father, do not leave me nor forsake me. He even said, why? Because in the middle of the storm, it's so easy to get distracted by your circumstances and lose sight of the presence of God. And see, he's, he's really creating this point, Isaiah, is that the presence of God is not determined by your circumstances. But we as believers, we have this mentality that my circumstances determines how close or how far God is away from me. And it could be no farther from the truth. That in this scripture, he's saying, I am right there with you. Why would God allow Jesus to die, pour out all of his holy, righteous, valuable blood to save you and redeem you and start a work inside of you only to waste it the first time you hit a storm and say, you know what, I give up. I thought I was doing right. You know, I pay, I'm just going to lose out on this investment. I'm going to lose out on this money. You know what, Jesus, we tried, but it, you know what, I'm done. Why would he stop? Now? And when you hit a storm, it doesn't mean God gave up on you. Sometimes God allows the hardest, most difficult battles for his best soldiers. Maybe that's what he's telling Israel in this scripture. That you're chosen, you're special to me. You are, uh, to every nation on earth, you are my people. But you know what? Israel, even to this day, fights more battles than any other nation in the history of the world. Why? Because maybe God sets his people apart by allowing them to be victorious over every single attack of the enemy. Maybe victory, maybe victory is how you move yourself forward in the spiritual. In order to have victory, you have to have a battle. Or maybe he's telling them that, you know, when the storms come, when the floods rise, maybe he's saying he's going to use the floods of life not to push us away, but to draw us closer. What, 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 what if when you hit a storm in life, what, what if it wasn't God saying, you know what, I'm done and he's trying to push us away. What if maybe we started drifting a month ago, maybe a year ago? We've been drifting and God allows a storm to come into our life to gather us and draw us back to his presence. Like we see this with Jonah in the Bible and in the Old Testament, Jonah's a prophet. The very beginning of the book of Jonah, God calls Jonah to be a prophet. He says, I need you to go to Nineveh and I need you to proclaim this word. And Jonah says, I don't want to go to Nineveh. And he literally goes in the opposite direction. He says he goes and gets a ship and he gets on the ship. He has all the supplies. And as soon as he gets out on the water, a storm comes upon the water. Like a storm, a flood is rising up, storms coming against him. 
And it said they started looking at the supplies on the ship. They started throwing supplies over in order to make sure they could survive. And see, when storms come, they make you reevaluate some things in your life. Jonah had to reevaluate some things. What is actually important to me right now? And for you, when storms come against your life, it makes you reevaluate what's really important to me and my family. And he's out there throwing stuff overboard and they're still about to sink and they start thinking, whose fault is this? And they look around, they start casting lots, which is nothing more than shooting craps in the name of Jesus. They're shooting craps and they look and it lands on Jonah. And Jonah said, it's my fault. I'm a prophet of God and I'm running away from him. And they said, well, if we're gonna solve this problem, let's throw Jonah overboard. And they take Jonah and throw him overboard. I like to think of it as him walking the plank in the Old Testament. Walk the plank and he walks the plank, he falls overboard. As soon as he hits the water, the storm stops. As soon as he hits the water, the storm stops. And in that moment, there's complete silence. In that moment, I think Jonah really starts reevaluating what does it truly mean to be called by name by God? And it says a fish began to swallow him, and he's in this fish for three days. And in that fish, he begins to pray. And the prayer is literally him quoting some Psalms of David. And they're Psalms of deliverance, Psalms of victory, but they're also Psalms of presence. And he starts saying things like, you've never left me nor forsaken me. You've never left me. You've never abandoned me. And see, what God did was God sent the storm to Jonah in order to get Jonah closer to God. See, you serve a God who is unwilling for you to go away with no obstacles in front of you. God will put every single obstacle he can. When you start drifting away from God, you better watch out. Because he will unleash heaven and, listen, he will unleash hell to stop you. He will unleash hell to stop you. He'll let consequences, he'll let obstacles. Why? He's sending storms because he's sending the storm, not because he's moving away, but because you're moving away. And he's going to use the storm to draw you and bring you closer back to him. Like that's the glory of God. God will use evil for good. He'll take what the enemy meant for evil and turn it to good. What is good? Getting back into his presence. That's why you can never, ever, ever allow the storms of life to push you farther away from God. You have to allow the storms of life to push you closer to God. They're the moments that we cry out, God, I don't know where you went, but I need you right now. Actually, the other moments we cry, God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry for trying to do it my own way. God, I'm sorry for making this dumb decision. God, I'm sorry for neglecting you. God, I'm sorry that you're the last one I've come to. God, I'm sorry that you're, you're my last resort. But God, take me back. And he says, listen, I still love you. I've always loved you. I never left you. You left me. He's like, I've been here the whole time just waiting for you to look up. Don't allow your stormy seasons to push you farther away. When you hit these stormy seasons, come back to the scripture. It says, in the waters, in the fires, I am with you. If he's with you, all you have to do is call out his name and reach up, and he'll be right there with you in every moment. Do you, you get this? This, this is a, a word for somebody in this room. Do you get this? Even in your darkest moment, David said in Psalms 139, he said, even if I go to Sheol, which is the Old Testament version of hell, even if I go there, you'll be there. Do you realize that in your darkest, most evil moment, in the moment 
That is the most sinful, despicable moment you could ever, ever fathom. God was there with you in the middle of it. And he was not ashamed of you in that moment. He still loved you and he still wanted you. And he was hoping even in that moment, you would see that the love of God is greater than the sin of man. And if you were to respond with trust and surrender, he would pluck you out of that dark moment or that kingdom of darkness and bring you in to say, you are my chosen people. You are my holy possession because he did not bring you this far to abandon you. And then finally, he says, as you go through this scripture, he says, because you are precious in my eyes. I want you to say precious. Everybody say precious. That's a very interesting word in this scripture. And the word actually means value that can't be comprehended. It's because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. Do you realize God can love you more in a moment? This, this is a lyric to a song. God can love you more in a moment than anyone else can in a lifetime. God can love you in one single moment than other people can love you your entire life. You may have a great mama and a great daddy. You may love your kids. You may think your kids love you. They will love you till they turn about 14 or 15 years old. They take a break for about four or five years and maybe they'll love you back. Other people may say they love you, but no one else is willing to empty their bank account to show you. In one moment, even upon the cross, in one moment, God said, I'm willing to empty the bank account and the treasury of heaven because you're so valuable to me. Like that value, he's saying you are precious. And he's also saying, coming out of the scripture, they're coming out of the circumstances and out of the river, out of the flood, out of the fire. He's saying, I love you and you're precious to me. Meaning your circumstances do not determine your value. Listen to me. Your circumstances do not determine your value. Just because you're going through a season doesn't mean God doesn't love you anymore. Why is the first time, the first thing happens that's negative in our lives, the first thing we say is, well, where's God? Does, does God not love me anymore? You know, atheists, they actually believe in God. They just question his love or his value. Because they all say, well, I don't like God because of this. You're an atheist and you said you don't like God. How do you not like somebody who doesn't exist? Like, that's dumb. And so their problem isn't with God. Their problem is they question the love of God based on circumstances. They question, how could a loving God allow this to happen? And God has given this this formula. He says, on the front end, I love you. Bad things are going to happen, but don't question because you're still precious to me. See, as a believer, stop questioning God's love for you just because life gets difficult. Guess what? The Bible is an entire story of difficulty. From the beginning to the end, it's difficulty, usually on our part. And in every difficult season, God still says, I love you. You're precious to me. And he's there for them. Do you realize in every single season, God has loved you and wanted you. And he demonstrates, even with our kids, sometimes people ask me the, 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 the unquestionable question, which kid of yours do you love the most? 
which right now is none of them. <laughs> no, and, I, and I'll tell them, well, you know, which kid do I love the most? Everybody says, well, we all love our kids equally the same, but we have different relationships with them. We all give all that junk. I love Alicia the most right now. So you're going to question. Well, why? She's 17, about to be 17 years old. She's trying to figure out the rest of her entire life. She's trying to figure out the next 50 years of her life within a 17-year-old mind and maturity level. But then it, it may be Araya as well that I love her the most because she's trying to really set herself apart from her family, from her twin sister, from her friends, by maintaining the values and the convictions inside of her heart. That's hard. For a 14-year-old girl to have these convictions and faith and values and try to maintain them within a culture that's trying to change them? Or it could be Ariana, who is another twin who's trying to set herself apart and discover who she is and what she's good at and what, who she, how she can set herself apart and, and maintain and build relationships and looking for uh, belonging with other people. Or it could be RJ, who at 13 years old realizes he's unique and he's different, but he lives in a culture that's trying to push him into a box. And he feels like he doesn't know if he's supposed to be black or white or, or godly or ungodly or what. He's trying to figure it all out at 13 years old. And so you could say, I love each of them the most because my love goes towards those who need it the most. In the same way, God loves you the most because his love flows to where it is needed the most. And so your circumstances don't determine your value. God determines your value and his love flows to where it's needed. This word precious, we use it for stones, precious diamonds or jewels or stones. And so I did some research, and there was the, the most expensive diamond ever sold was the pink heart diamond at $83 million. $83 million. But they said the most expensive diamond was some diamond, I can't pronounce the name, that the British royal family actually owns, and they can't set a value on it because they believe it is worth more than three times the global wealth. Three times the global wealth. That's expensive. Do you realize that in heaven, everything is encrusted in diamonds? Everything is encrusted in diamonds. The streets are paved of gold. There's rubies, there's jewels, there's sapphires everywhere. God didn't need another diamond. He wanted you. And he's saying, you're more valuable to me than an $83 million diamond. He says, I got diamonds everywhere. I don't need a diamond. I need a Derek Parker. I need a Josh Miles. I need a Dr. Dr. Tucker. I don't need diamonds. I need my people back. He's looking in the glass case thinking, I don't know if I want to play these stupid games anymore, but I'm willing to play them because I need my people back. See, and wise believers, why would we ever question our value if we're saved? God has already shown us and demonstrated his value of us. And it's up to us to begin to believe him. It's up to us to begin to believe him. So when you hit difficulties, do not let life's circumstances determine your value. Listen to this. Let your circumstances 
help you rediscover your value in the love of God. Do you get that? Let your circumstances help you rediscover your true value and worth in the love of God. Maybe God has allowed you to go through the difficult season because he wanted you to rediscover your worth to him. Maybe he's sick and tired of you believing the opinions of everybody else. And he's allowing you to go through this flood, through this fire, through this season so that you'll be awakened to the fact that he loves you more than all these little knuckleheads. Ladies, quit trying to find your value in a young boy or a young man who tells you he loves you and values you while you neglect discovering your value in Jesus who's already demonstrated how much he loves you. Men, quit trying to discover your value in your job or your occupation or in your masculinity or in your career and learn to discover your value in God because that is only and only when everything else makes sense. We live in a world that's trying to put cheap price tags on us. And God has already put the price tag on you and he's already paid it in full. It's time to believe him. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for this prophecy from Isaiah that demonstrates us that you show us our value on the front end. And I thank you, Father, that you redeemed us from out of darkness into the light. I thank you that even through the difficult seasons of life, through storms and hell and high water, that we know that you are with us and your love and your value for us has not changed. And Father, we thank you that you do not leave us nor forsake us when things get difficult. You move right into our place of need. And Father, right now in this place, I pray for every broken heart. I pray for everyone who's been abused, mistreated, Father, they don't see their self-worth, they don't see their value, and they're trying to find that in, in terrible relationships. They're trying to find it in jobs and careers. They're trying to find it in, in trying to tear other people down. Father, help them rediscover the price tag that you've placed on them. Let them start ripping off layers of lies, of fake names and gossip and slander and false words spoken over them. Help them rediscover their value in you. And Father, right now, for every person in this room that is still caught up in the kingdom of darkness, maybe their eyes have adjusted to the darkness, maybe they can see and function, but they're still not your possession. They're still not your child. Holy Spirit, I give you permission in this moment to touch every single heart that is not yours. And I ask as you touch that heart, you begin to speak love and value and life and begin to awaken them spiritually to the kingdom you want them to be a part of. Awaken them to the love of a father who's unwilling that any should perish, but that every single one should come to everlasting life. If that's you. If you're in this room this morning, and maybe you're not confident in saying that I am God's child, I am God's possession. Maybe that's affected your life in lots of ways that you find your value in other people and other things. You said this morning, I just want to give my heart to Jesus. I want him to protect it. I want him to guard it. I want him to guide it. I want him to love it. I want him to nourish it. I want a new life in him. You said, then that's me. The Holy Spirit is, is talking to me this morning. I want to make this my day. I want to repent of my old life. 
I want to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and trust him, not just as my Lord, not just as my Savior, but as my Father and my King. That's you. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Not going to have you come forward or stand up. If you say, you know, that's me. I'm just going to ask that you raise your hand so I can see you and I can pray with you. If that's you, just slip your hand up. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? I'm going to pray in just a second, but at the end of the service, we're going to have the prayer team come forward. If you're one of the few people that raise your hands, if you would just either come down front, let them have your name so they can get a gift in your hand or swing by the info center. Let them get your name so we can follow up with you and love on you and encourage you and walk this journey out of faith with you, but also get a gift to help you on that journey in your hand. Father, we thank you for your love that is ridiculous. That's amazing, that is deep, that is unconditional, that's everlasting. And we thank you that you call us yours. And so, Father, we lift up your name. Father, help us understand. Let that fuel our gratitude and our worship towards you. Father, let it fuel our passion to reach those who are far away from you. And, Father, for those that raised their hands this morning, they raised their hands in recognition of your name, the name that is above every other name. And Father, as they lift up your name, I pray that you call out their name, not their earthly name, but their heavenly name, the way you see them, the way you know them, the way you love them, and the way you value them. And I pray, Father, as you do, you begin to wash them with the blood of Jesus. Renew them. Let them be regenerated regenerated in your spirit to become a new person in Christ. And Father, give them conviction and strength and power through your Holy Spirit. And Father, as they walk out of this place, let them walk out a new creature in you, boldly professing the love of Jesus and the gospel of salvation. So we bless you, we thank you in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, stand to your feet. I'm gonna have the the altar team come forward. If you need prayer for anything, I know there's a lot of stuff going on. We prayed for a couple at the beginning of service. But if you need prayer for anything, we don't wanna just say we pray, we wanna actually pray, we wanna love and encourage. So we're gonna go in one more song of worship real quick. So if you do us a favor, just don't try to leave yet. Let's give a little private moment in time. But if you need prayer for anything, we're going to pray and love and encourage you in Jesus' name.